and welcome to the Old Time Radio Hour. I'm your host, Justine Ward, and each week we bring you a classic show from radio's golden age. Happy Thanksgiving! In troubled times, people focus on what there is to feel thankful for. Before the U.S. joined World War II, Norman Corwin, the poet laureate of old radio, created a psalm of thanksgiving for a troubled world. It is as perfect for our world today as it was in the 1940s. This is the last in a Columbia Workshop series called 26 by Corwin, a top-quality show sponsored by the network. This is Columbia Workshop, Psalm for a Dark Year, first broadcast November 9, 1941, on CBS. presents program number 26 of 26 by Corwin. Psalm for a Dark Year. An ode of thanksgiving, written and directed by Norman Corwin, with an original musical score composed and conducted by Alexander Semler. votive table and give thanks where thanks are due. We shall give thanks tonight for song and bread and such a thing as love and dogged hope and for the guarantee of morning somewhere at some season. You must bring with you to the feast an offering. It can be little, one good grape, a grain of cinnamon, a sentiment, Three bars of an old folk song. Half a notion. A living thing that's glad of living, be it a mosquito fresh from lava or a floating spore. Sit where you will. There are no place cards here and no priority. The good right hand of fellowship is at your left and at your right perhaps an antique pharaoh or a medieval saint. A poet temporarily run out of couplets or a plumber just arrived from the installing of a sink. Please note there is no head to this round table. Instead, an empty chair reserved for any perfect man and uh, 
therefore fated to be empty. First now, the breaking of the bread. Who will say grace? St. Paul, will you kindly? He that eateth, eateth unto the Lord, for he giveth God thanks. be music such as this throughout, for song is celebration, whether it is tuned to joy or woe or to the passions in between. We who are thankful give up thanks for music and the instruments of music and the makers of the instruments of music, yea, the sistrum and the dulcimer, the psaltery, the tabor, the cithara, the sackput and the looping horns. Listen to the big and buxom bulls. the gentle fiddles gambling across the staves, the piquant flute, the pastoral and plaintive oboe singing of nostalgias we must always know. And the celeste to which the planetoids prefer to dance. Also, that wondrous instrument which can speak words and give them meaning, inflect them, playing on the mind, the spirit bowstring, the human voice, the various and sweet and pungent human voice, now seraphim, now Satan. hearty congregation, great old Greeks and grocers, clerks and young maids from Carolina looking for careers in New York City, and a shipping clerk from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, two emperors of China, and a mild professor from Ohio, and a girl named Rhoda with rheumatic fever, farmhands, and a locomotive engineer, and sailormen, and actors' agents, and a lissom tightrope walker thankful for a solid rope beneath his feet. Each is thankful in his fashion and his measure. I, for the earth and weathers, being a farmer, for the sun, which is good, and the rain, which is good, and for the rising before dawn, and the frosty air, and the placid animals, to whom I am the god of feed, the giver of the corn and grain, And I am thankful for the day, which is good, and the night, which is good, and for the hard one sleeping, which is also good. And I am thankful for the plow in my hand, and the tilling of the land in fall, for crops to be sown in winter, and the tilling of the land in spring, for the Indian corn of summer. I am not thankful for potato bugs or the maize smut but am for the well-framed orchards and the grafted trees and the gathered harvest. I am thankful for the day which is good. I am thankful for the night which is good. And I am 
low tide. I'm an eel fisher and a clam fisher. For the flats at low tide, I guess. And the salty smell. For my clam rake and spade, I guess. And the spear I use to snag eels with. And the bellboy off by the shoals. And then the seagulls which circle overhead and glide along the beach all day looking for clams too. Like me. And I like to think sometimes of the thin rim of dried salt on the spit of sand where the last wave breaks when the tide's going out. And of the bright days when the water is blue. And the gray days when the water is gray. I'm thankful to God for clams and eels and low tide, I guess. I am thankful to God for clams and eels. I am thankful to God for clams and eels and the Lord. mother several times over, am thankful for the love of it and the pain of it, for the growth up from the crib and the teething and all the trouble and the coming out of trouble, for the cured abscess of the ear which Emmy had, getting better the way it did after we were so worried and sat up all night for two nights and didn't get a wink of sleep. Yes, and for Charles getting over being tongue-tied. And Joe, the wild boy, getting married to such a fine girl as Louise and settling down. And for my husband, Donald, to have lived to see his eldest daughter, Hannah, married and bringing up a nice family. And for the letters that the children write me whenever they can. And the cards they send me on Mother's Day. And for the radio when it gets lonely. Especially in the wintertime when all the summer folk have gone away. For all these things and many others, I am thankful. I am thankful for the love of it and the pain of it. I am thankful for the What of the season? Shall we not say thanks for seasons and the zones between them when they are neither here nor there but surely coming? For the time in March when the crocus goes to town and the robin makes reconnaissance and the icicle has given orders to relax. For the time in June when the laziest bud, the last to leaf, says, All right, I am ready. Summer may begin. Bring on the south wind, the cicadas, and the bees that I've heard so much about. Oh, surely, sure. Let this be celebrated in our best tradition by a song. By not too young a song, since spring and summer are an ancient team. A song, let's say, of summer's coming in. It must be old, but fresh, familiar, yet a little different each time met with as summertime herself. Summer is the coming in, mother is the coming in. Blow a seed and blow a 
Now, may I rise to thank the master painter of the year? Well, who's that? October. No louvre in the world is big enough to hold his landscapes. He is exhibited in every tinctured leaf and hung in every meadow. Have you seen his skyscapes? Mm -hmm. Oh, yes, indeed. They say he mixes pigments out of elemental stuffs and ranges far afield. Did you know his greens come from a special patch of the Aegean? His reds from Yuma in the eyes of Bengal tigers and the powdered beaks of tropical toucans. His oranges are skimmed, they say, from surfaces of rising moons. Well, where do his tints of hazel come from? Well, hazelnuts. His plum color? From plums. His fawn from fawns? Precisely. Is he not a marvel then, October? Yes, he is. Not worth a canticle? Oh, worth several. Here is one for now. This is mockery, this festive hour. A mockery? How now? This breaking bread while famine grins in every land. This music while the whistling bomb sets pitch for all the sharp-tuned instruments of death. This talk of landscapes when the color of the earth is red and growing redder. And you know it. Are you proposing thanks? Yes, we are. <laughs> Why, if Satan himself was sitting here among us, he could reasonably proffer thanks to all of our kind for many favors done him in continuing. His horsemen thunder down the ways. His legions multiply like festering bacteria. How can our thanksgivings be unaffected knowing this? Look, no empire built of darkness and disease of soul shall give us pause. The interlocking fury of free men will, like a blinding and a sterilizing shaft of light nullify such decay. What comes of festering bacteria in the sunlight? It doesn't matter. While we speak, new fallen angels plummet from the skies like a malignant hail. The air is a shriek with misery. Yea, the earth is fevered. Pity and mercy both are exiled to a foreign star. And charity's aghast. To see a million of our brothers writhing in the puddle of their blood. Has there ever been a tempest time did not outride? The truth that was mixed in with the molten ores when still our smoking planet sought a place among the systems, that truth 
awaits extraction like a rare but mighty radium deep in the bowels of the earth. Those who have held it shining in their hands never will be countervailed. Never countervailed. Though crucifixion tested and armies of defenders stagger backward through the night, once we understand no weapon in the hand of any host of any hell can strike asunder man from man. Brothers are not for long divisible. Let us be thankful now for this. Come a long distance to this table and must go far hence. I verify this thing that brotherhood is not so wild a dream as those who profit by postponing it pretend. It cannot be that common kindness and a working plan are more bizarre imaginings than that a man should squeeze the world into a room and speak across it casually and be heard. I am a wanderer. Was born in exile as my father was, and as my children will be. I am of a race which lives in every clime and under every flag except its own. I verify this thing. Let now the ram's horn of my father's tribe. Resound a note of thankfulness for perseverance and for law, for strength out of adversity and order out of chaos. Listen to it. There's the shrill wind blowing down the wrinkled plains of Shinar. Through the self-same wildernesses. Past the hoary head of Sinai. Blows the melancholy shofar. Sounds the shofar down the ages. Egypt. Jericho and Persia. Greece and Rome. And the dispersion. Pogrom. Ghetto inquisition. Past the rise and fall of empires. Past the ebb and flow of eras. Through the gauntlet of affliction, index inhumanitarum, pox and physis, plague and cannon, still above the blare of trumpets, still above the brass of hatred, blows the horn of benediction. Men have listened. Men have listened. They will listen yet tomorrow for the horn of benediction. For the horn of benediction. May I speak for a moment, having but a moment left to speak in? I, too, am listening for a horn to blow. 
one which will call me from this time and place to another time and place. In this, my 92nd year, my eyes grown dim, my hearing poor, sleeping most of the time, the foothills of sleep before I reach the mountains, I am thankful for still clear memories, both big and little, happy and sorrowful. Of the dress I wore at Lincoln's second inaugural ball, of meeting Edward on a sleigh ride one December night when the moon was new and Mount Toby lay frozen under stars that seemed so low you could almost touch them. Of the morning Ralph was born, of how little Edwina died of the diphtheria. Of all the other memories, the many, many other things too full to hint at, too many to contain. I, I joke with my grandchildren when they come to see me now. I tell them I'm like a minute man, ready to go at a moment's notice. Pardon my appearance, good friends all. I am but lately risen from the grave. One of a hundred who were stood one morning, one bright morning, between a dozen muzzles and a wall. Tonight it rains where we were lowered in the ground. A rain of mid-November falling cold upon the countryside. Spreading its sorrows over, cautioning the earth that winter is coming, winter in the bone and winter in the flesh, and winter on the clean-swept hearthstone. We who are so early quit of this sweet place, young and unready for the quiet, loving the tug of the wind and the swaying grass, the pillowing breasts of our beloved, and the laughter of our children, loving the look of the day in the east, but seeing it no more, turned turned away and face to face with night. We who are solemn with dust upon our lips whisper now our thankfulness in chorus that we have been noted, that we shall not be forgotten, that good men, good understanding men, have noted that we shall not be forgotten. For this, for this, for this much thanks. (laughs) 
sons of men, daughters of the mingled lovers of the many tribes who make us what we are, brothers, sisters by the millions, sitting with us at this table, encircled round us through the far, wide-spreading states. What year this is, we shall not soon forget. Remark it, each of you belonging to it, this year shall skulk among the blackest annals ever, pitied, wondered on, and sung about as long as our posterity looks back to see the how and why of what has gone before. None of us makes pretense to himself of tranquil temper. There are no barefoot pleasures in these hobnailed times. The world is burning. It is burning. Flame is never subtle in its ways. It has a pattern all can recognize. We smell the smoke and feel the scorching air and see the embers snatched up by the winds and blown this way and that. But we are thankful, thankful in this graceless year for the strong joy of the challenge, for defiance in the nostril and the weapon in the hand. Shall we despair who've suckled freedom on the brew of vintages of wrath? Shall we be thankless for the passions stirring in our blood? The love of country, of each spine of cactus and each particle of mist? Shall we be thankless for the way we walk? Fearlessly, not stealing glances backward. For the way we talk? For scorn and laughter and the clenching of the fist? Come, come Americans, come now and praise the broken bread together and the fiddle, and the tilling of the land, the bellboy by the shoals, and Joe, the wild boy, getting married to Louise. Praise now October and the song of songs together. Praise the men who never shall forget. The steel mills working through the night, the rifle factory, the weapon in the hand. Arise now and give thanks where thanks are due. have been listening to Psalm for a Dark Year, a Thanksgiving ode written, directed, and produced by Norman Corwin as program number 26 in the Columbia Workshop special cycle, 26 by Corwin. The musical score was composed and conducted by Alexander Semler. The principal narration was done by Mr. Corwin. Others in the cast were Martin Gable, Parker Fenley, Anne Boley, Frank Lovejoy, Martin Wolfson, Hester Sundergaard, Sidney Smith, Gene Allen, Ian Martin, and Charles Carroll. In closing 26 by Corwin, we present Davidson Taylor, who resumes next week as producer of the Columbia Workshop. Tonight we have heard the last broadcast in what has been, even for the Columbia Workshop, a most unusual series. 26 shows written, directed, and produced by one man. 
The Columbia Network is proud not only of 26 by Corwin, but also of other such landmarks in radio drama, as seems radio's here to stay, they fly through the air, and the plot to overthrow Christmas, all by Corwin. Most of us remember when Norman Corwin's name was new to the workshop. It is one of the workshop's jobs to find new talents and give them proper hearings. During the coming weeks, we shall hear the work of a number of new writers. And we're excited, frankly, about the quality and variety of their scripts. We have in store for you a regional show, a satire, a farce, a document, a fantasy, an opera, and a melodrama which belong in workshop company. Every Sunday at this time, we invite you to share the pleasures of discovery with us. We'll try to go on doing what the workshop has attempted ever since the first broadcast on July 18th, 1936. We'll try to bring you every week something you could have heard nowhere else in radio. Columbia Broadcasting System. You're listening to the Old Time Radio Hour broadcast each week over the World Wide Web with your host, Justine Ward. Next, we have a Thanksgiving-themed show from Cavalcade of America, sponsored by DuPont Chemicals. DuPont wanted to burnish their image with this high-quality show exploring American themes and history. Enjoy this Cavalcade of America, Feast from the Harvest, first broadcast November 23, 1942, on NBC. Starring Louis Bromfield in Feast from the Harvest. The Thanksgiving play on the Cavalcade of America, sponsored by DuPont, maker of better things for better living through chemistry. On our program tonight, ladies and gentlemen, DuPont presents Louis Bromfield, both as author and as storyteller. His play, Feast from the Harvest, is a story of the land. In Mr. Bromfield's words, a story of the earth, which is the foundation of everything. Louis Bromfield as author and storyteller of Feast from the Harvest on the Cavalcade of America. This is the story of a family, and of a valley, and of a piece of land, somewhere in the wide, rich expanse of these United States. The story has no hero, no heroine. It's a story about people. It is about the American people, who in the past have been, and in the future must be, everything this country is and can be. The story happens on Thanksgiving night, where the people of the valley, young, old, and middle-aged, are gathered together in the assembly rooms of the Valley Church to celebrate the richness of the harvest that is to feed us all. 
ourselves, our allies, and perhaps a little later, the starving women and children of our enemies. It is a tale of the land and of fertility without which all else, even civilization itself, wavers, thickens, and dies. It is the story of the earth, which is the foundation of everything. Pumpkin pie and cider for everybody over in the church kitchen. Wait, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute. Now, it's Thanksgiving, folks, and before we fall on the food, the Reverend Simpson's got a few words to say. Just a few words of Thanksgiving for all the plenty we got here in the valley. Plenty like nobody else on this earth has got. Yeah, come on up here on the platform, Reverend. All right, now. Quiet, quiet, everybody. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank thee for all the plenty, the peace, the beauty we have here in our valley. For the wide fields of corn and the fat cattle, the fruit that comes with the rich harvest season. And Lord, we ask a blessing upon the boys who are leaving the valley to fight to preserve our liberties. Upon Sidney Wells and Johnny Wells and Hilbert Noyes and upon Henry Drake from Tennessee who is visiting us and going away tomorrow. Bless them all, O Lord, and bring them back as you brought back their fathers and grandfathers from other wars. We thank thee, O Lord, and implore thy blessing. Amen. That was mighty fine, Reverend. Thank you, sir. Uh, all right, now, folks, the Grand March to supper. <laughs> Get your partners. Here we go. <laughs> the preacher to ask a special blessing for you, Henry. I sure appreciate it. Everybody's mighty nice to strangers up here. We'd better go and eat. Oh, uh, I don't want to eat right now. I'm not very hungry. Can you wait? Sure, I can wait. What's the matter with you tonight, Henry? Oh, it's such a pretty night. Moonlight and all. Seems a shame to waste it inside. It's a mighty pretty night. Well, what do you want to do? Uh... How about going outside for a little while? It's not cold. Your coat's right there on the wall. I'll get it. Oh. Well, what's the matter, Mary? Aren't you and Henry hungry? Oh, we're just waiting until the others get through. Well, here's your coat, Mary. Oh, oh you're going sparking, eh? Well, uh, oh. there ain't no reason why a young soldier shouldn't go sparking with a pretty girl like Mary. There's been a lot of sparking right here in the Valley Churchyard. Oh, it's a long time. <laughs> you know, that, that, that's where I got my wife just outside there. Now, take good care of her, young man. You better will. See, she's a mighty pretty girl. Good luck. Come on, Larry. 
This coward let us alone. Oh, he didn't mean anything. Just mankind like. Isn't it beautiful? I don't guess there's any place in the world more beautiful than our valley. Sure is. Better take my arm. Right. Where are we going? Just over there under the cedar trees. There's an old bench there. In the graveyard? Aren't you afraid? What's there to be afraid of? All my family's in there. My grandfather and my great-grandparents. And way back beyond that. Way, way back to the time of the Indians. That's so. Oh, look at the white mist down along the creek. Like new clean wool. Well, sometimes on a night like this, I, I imagine them coming into the valley for the first time, long ago. The first settlers coming up the valley down there where the mist is. Don't it scare you? No, Henry. Oh, there's an owl. Down in my country, they say you better turn your shoe over tonight or you'll have bad luck. <laughs> Silly. You know, you're a funny girl, but I kind of like that. Even if you aren't afraid of ghosts. Mary. What, Henry? What? Cat got your tongue? Hear that train down there? Yes. I'm uh, going away to the army tomorrow. Yes, I know that, Henry. Uh, sure you're warm enough? Maybe you better snuggle up a bit. Sure, Henry. Mary. Yes, what is it, Henry? What do you want to say? Uh, what was your first kinfolk in the valley called? First kinfolk? Uh, their names were Jonathan and Mariah Ferguson. They're buried right over there. Those two tombstones that are covered with ivy and kind of crumbling. Jonathan and Mariah. Mm-hmm. Funny names like you don't hear anymore. They had a little girl called Sapphira. She was my great-great-grandmother. She's lying over there under the weeping willow. Funny how people go on and get married over and over since the beginning of everything. Mm. Sometimes on nights like this, I think I can hear the sound of wagon wheels and voices calling out way down there in the valley. Sometimes I think people don't die at all. But their spirit just goes on and on forever. You think they're still down there in the mist? Yes, in a way. They're everywhere here in the valley. They help to make the valley. Listen. The foxes are barking up on the ridge. They begin barking about this time of year. The mating season. Mm-hmm. Listen. The earliest settlers must have heard them, too, when they first came into the valley. I wonder what it was like then, what they were like, those first settlers. boy and a girl, looking down into the mist of the valley, where long ago the first wagon train of settlers moved into the richest country on earth. So came the family of Jonathan and Mariah Ferguson out of the east. Listen, you can hear the singing of Solomon, the Negro who rode with them, a freedman coming into the new wilderness. Beneath the wagon swing crates of live ducks and chickens, and behind them follow two cows a young bull, and a pair of goats. In one wagon rides a woman. She is nursing a baby. Another child, a boy of six, rides at the back of the wagon, peering out. 
He's watching for birds and deer and chipmunks as the wagons move along the tunnel of green, dappled with the sunlight of the warm, kind months of June. A man and a boy guide the teams of oxen as long poles. One is a hired man called Ezra Pulsifer, and the boy, 15 years old, is called Ezekiel. These are good people, strong people, religious people. What you see is something out of the Old Testament. The story is as old as Moses, as old as time itself. This is the beginning of America. Listen. You can hear the man and boy with the long poles calling out to the faithful beasts which have drawn the wagons for long weeks over the trail. Hi, right, Buck. Hi, right, Barry. Go easy, boy. Hello there. Up now. Ready? And the voice of the woman on the seat of the high wagon singing an old song to the child at her breast. You can see a little girl, dark-haired, gypsy-eyed, running along beside the wagon in her long skirt. She carries a bright feather in her hand and a little bag made of cotton cloth. She has walked beside the wagon all the way from Maryland because this new world is a wonderful place filled with wonderful things. Wait, Ezekiel. Stop the wagon and let the fire come up. Hold up. Hold up. Hold up now. This fire. I'll give you a boost up. Here, here, give me a hand. Oh, look, Mammy. Look at the feather I found. What is it? Oh, it's an eagle feather. A feather from the golden eagle. What is it that new bag? Oh, lots of things, Mammy. Look, a stone. It shines like a diamond. It's quartz. And a sharp stone. I found it at the crick. Look, I cut my finger on it. Well, that's an arrowhead. The Indians make them. Will we meet any Indians, Mama? Perhaps. I hope not. When can Pappy and I catch some more fish? You'll have to ask your father. Perhaps that's the next thing. Are Indians terrible, Mammy? Do they scalp and burn up people? Oh, you mustn't think about such things, Sophia. Hush now. Let the baby see. And up ahead on a mare called Belle rides the father. His name is Jonathan Ferguson, and he looks Scotch like his name, with black curly hair and blue eyes. He is a big man, a strong man, a tough man who has fought Indians and the border people. He rides easily, a musket slung across the saddle, a knife and a tomahawk at his belt. He is no green traveler. He knows these hills and forests and marshes and streams. It is a rich country of green valleys and of hills, piled up by the great glaciers 200,000 years ago. Now look. The trail crosses the crest of a hill, and down below, in the misty light of the early morning, spreads a winding, clear stream, flashing with fish, and bordered by green marshes where the wild ducks fly up at the distant sound of the chalking wagon wheels. The crest of the hill, Jonathan Ferguson, pulls up the mare and raises his hand as a signal for the caravan to halt. He is thinking. Perhaps if you listen hard enough, you can hear his thoughts. What a country. What a beautiful country. You can see by the trees how rich it is. Yes, man, believe in God. Right. Look, there it is. What, Jonathan? Our place, where we're going to settle. There in the notch between the hills of the river. Oh, Jonathan. Our spring just beyond it. It 
It's our new world. All ours, Mariah, for the taking. Come on, boys. We'll make it for evening. The little girl ran beside the wagon with my great-great-grandmother, Sapphira. The Indians murdered one of her brothers. He's buried over there near his father and mother. And the oldest one, Ezekiel, was driving the oxen. He died at New Orleans fighting with Andrew Jackson. The little girl, Sapphira, built the old part of our house about where my room is. It's nice to know so far back about your kinfolk. Oh, it's easy here in the valley. Sometimes I feel like they're all around us, like they weren't dead at all. And over there is my great-grandfather, John. He was Sapphira's son. He died fighting with Antietam. I had a great-grandpappy in that battle. He was on the other side. Oh. And where they are is Uncle Benjamin. He was a senator. His father William's man. He was a colonel in the war against the Spanish. They had another brother called Edward. He got to be president of a big bank down in New York. I don't know much about him. He left Dad's money by another farm. He isn't buried here, though. He's in New York someplace. Mary is right. They are all there, about her, unseen in the moonlight in the misty valley. Jonathan and Mariah, Sapphira, and Sapphira's son, John, who died at Antietam. And Benjamin, the senator, and Edward, the banker. They are all there because they are a part of the valley itself, like the trees and the fields and the houses. They are a part of America. They are not dead so long as America lives. They can never die. They are all there watching Mary and Henry on the moss-covered old bench in the churchyard. If you listen carefully, you can hear them. You can hear Jonathan speaking, and Sapphira, and Benjamin, and all the others, there in the moonlight and the mist. Listen. Jonathan is speaking. Jonathan the hunter, the first one to come into the valley. Is that you, Sapphira? Yes, Pappy. Look, Mariah, that's little Mary over there on the bench with her young man. You know, Mariah, little Mary, Elma Payne's little girl. She's a mighty nice-looking young man, Jonathan, but awful tongue-tied, like you were that evening back in the orchard in Frederickstown. Remember, Jonathan, the evening Thomas Jefferson came to Frederickstown to make his speech? Sure, I remember. Oh, here comes my boy, John. Hello, John. Hello, Ma. Say, our Mary's turned out to be a mighty pretty young girl. Funny. I proposed to Hester on that same bench before I went off to Antietam. Oh, here comes Benjamin, the senator. Good evening, Ben. Good evening, all. How do you do? My brother Ed, the banker, is coming, too. All the way from New York. Here he is now. Hello, Ed. Good evening, kinfolk. You've come a long way. I heard something important was happening. I heard the family was about to grow. Yes. They're over there on the bench. See? He can't quite get to the point. She's too shy to help him. She's been telling him all about us. <laughs> Maybe he needs a push. You were never shy, Sapphira. Not where young men were concerned. Get behind her. 
Give him courage. Don't you worry, Sophia. He'll get to the point. He'll ask her. I see it all spread out ahead just as if it was the past. They'll get married, maybe tomorrow, before he goes away. And he'll come back from the war all right, and they'll have four children. He's going to be a great engineer, do great things for his country. And he'll take Mary away from the valley. And in the end, they'll both come back to the valley to sleep with us. You always knew everything, Moran. You always did. I'm always glad when somebody in the family gets married or is born or dies. It brings us all together again. Where are you going, Sapphira? Oh, oh, don't call out like that. You might frighten them. I'm just going to give Mary's young man the push he needs. Don't meddle, Sapphira. No, Jonathan. Let her go. Tell me where that wind has come from suddenly. On a still night like this. Out of nowhere. It's just blowing here all about us. Look over there. The trees aren't moving. Better lean a little closer. I'm afraid of you getting cold. That's better. Now, if you put your head on my shoulder, you'll be good and comfortable. That is nice, Henry. Mary. I love you. I love you, Mary. Aren't you going to say anything? I can't, Henry. But, but I love you, too. Will you marry me? Yes, I know. Funny how it's hard to say things like that. I just felt as if somebody had given me a push from behind. It's been a lovely Thanksgiving day. I guess we're pretty lucky. Yeah, we're lucky, all right. There's only one thing that would make me luckier. What, Henry? If you'd marry me tomorrow, before I go away. It's awful quick. I, I'd have to think. But it don't matter, Mary, if we love each other, how quick it is. All right, Henry. Tomorrow, then. Honey, it was just as if somebody pushed me then. Oh, that's through supper. Maybe we'd better go in. Oh, no. Not yet, Mary. It's so nice here. Just the way we are. Mary! Oh. Mary Payne! Mary! Yes, Joe? Better get in here. They're giving away the toward raising food for the war effort. Uh, to Henry Harris. One war bond for the biggest yield per acre of soybeans. <laughs> to Herman Nussbaum. One war bond for the best acre of truck gardens. <laughs> Here you are, Herman. To Maria Poldinsky, one war bond for the finest exhibit of home canned goods. <laughs> Good for you, Maria. To Homer Berry, one war bond for the best yield on one acre of corn. 
102 bushels. Great, great production, Homer. And finally, to Mary Payne. One war bond for raising with her own hands the finest steer in Pleasant Valley. And I, I just heard that Mary's got something else to tell her. Well, go ahead, Mary, and tell him. Well, go on, tell him what's the matter. What are you scared of? You ain't ashamed, are you? Hey, 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 back there. Close that door before we get blown out of here. All right, now tell him, Mary. Go on. All right. Henry and I are being married tomorrow, and we want you all to come to the wedding. Good. All right, I'll tell him for you. Mary and Henry are getting married tomorrow. <laughs> And they want you all to come to the wedding. And now, 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 before going home, we'll all join the choir in singing a good night hymn. All right, Ed, let it go. is our America, the rich, abundant America of yesterday and today and tomorrow, the America which will win this war and go on as a great nation, believing forever in the power and the rights of the people, an America made up of Mary Payne and Henry Drake and Maria Paulinski and Herman Nussbaum and all the others, the people loved by Thomas Jefferson and Abraham Lincoln. It is a great tradition the greatest tradition the world has ever known since the beginning of time. Living in it, we can only go forward to victory. As never before, Americans may offer thanksgiving for the harvest this year. Our American farmers have had to call on their wives and youngsters to help in the fields. They have worked with fewer and fewer hired hands. They have worked their land facing shortages in farm machinery, in transportation, just when machines and transportation were needed most. Under hard conditions without precedent, our farmers have had to produce food not only for us, not only for the millions of men in the services, but also for our allies. Somehow, working day and night, they have done the job, done the impossible. The harvest is in, the greatest harvest in our country's history. We may well bow our heads and give thanks this Thanksgiving Day. Farmers are also growing farm crops for industry, which industry is turning into products essential to the war effort. You may not fully appreciate this new increasing outlet for agricultural products, to carry at one time all of the products from farm and forest purchased by the DuPont Company alone in one pre-war year would require a line of 50,000 giant five-ton trucks rolling bumper to bumper over 236 miles of highway. That is approximately the distance from Washington, D.C. to New York City. Today, there would be far more loads than that. And DuPont represents only one unit of America's industrial chemistry. Wood pulp and cotton linters, the fuzz that stays on cottonseed after the fibers are removed, are the sources of cellulose for the chemist. 
Cellulose goes into explosives. But it's also the source of cellophane, of rayon, of motion picture and X-ray film, of plastics and many other chemical products. Corn is another product of agriculture that is used by the chemist in making commercial dynamite, a basic product as essential to agriculture, mining, and construction as smokeless powder is to war. Flaxseed and cottonseed reach the chemist as vegetable oils, used in the manufacture of paints, varnishes, enamels, and lacquers, in making soap and many other industrial and household products. Industrial chemistry buys quantities of vegetable oils. Peanut oil is another one, used primarily by food chemists. This year, farmers have more than doubled their acreage planted to peanuts, from two million acres to more than four. And today, every American farmer knows the soybean. America's 1942 soybean crop is estimated at more than 200 million bushels, which means something like 2 billion pounds of soybean oil. Through chemistry, soybeans become paint and varnish, medicines, glycerin, soaps, linoleum, adhesives, paper coatings, glue, plastics, and also food, salad oil, cooking oil, vegetable shortening, and even ice cream. From molasses and grain, DuPont makes industrial alcohol. Also from molasses and grain, DuPont obtains carbon dioxide, essential in the manufacture of dry ice to safeguard foodstuffs. From the same farm products comes the lactic acid used in the tanning of leather and other industrial applications. This partnership between American agriculture and American industry, especially the chemical industry, is working night and day to win the war and win it fast. These farm crops used by industry will, when peace is won again, serve more and more people as better things for better living through chemistry. Next week, ladies and gentlemen, Cavalcade will be privileged to present for the first time ever on the air a dramatization of the life and work of the celebrated Australian nurse, Sister Elizabeth Kenny, whose treatment for infantile paralysis has brought her world recognition. Miss Madeline Carroll will be our star and will portray Sister Kenny. Be sure to be with us next Monday when Cavalcade presents a dramatization of the life and work of Sister Elizabeth Kenny who will appear on our program speaking from Minneapolis, where she is now engaged in training nurses in her method of treatment. On tonight's broadcast, James McCallion played the boy, Charita Bauer, the girl. The orchestra and musical score were under the direction of Don Voorhees. This is Clayton Collier sending best wishes from DuPont. This program has come to you from New York. This is the National Broadcasting Company. You have been listening to the Old Time Radio Hour, broadcast each week over the World Wide Web. You can subscribe at no charge through Apple Podcasts, Podbean, or RSS. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you can join us again next week for another hour of entertainment from the golden age of radio. Until then, this is your host, Justine Ward, saying so long for now. (laughs) 